Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here with David Gran for the New Books Network, Native American Studies Channel. We're going to be discussing his new, the new the paperback release of his new book, Killers of the Flower Moon. David Gran, of course, is the author of, among other books, uh, The Lost City of Sea. He is um, a journalist, winner of numerous awards. Uh, Mr. Gran, welcome to the show. Thank you very much on the program. We'll start off first, as we usually do, with uh, the cover. Can you can you describe the cover for us and, and uh, the background images by uh, you know John Fontana and Richard Smith, Alamy, and why you selected this particular cover? Yeah. Um, so uh, the the publisher and John, who has designed all the covers of all my books, and is really uh, terrific and a real artist and such a great aesthetic. So. Um, the image um, shows uh, an oil well, um, kind of a moody uh, kind of sunset, uh, um, a kind of a slightly eerie uh, quality of that kind of fading out. Um, and there is, of course, a, a moon in the distance um, kind of overshadowing everything. And, of course, the title is Killers of the Flower Moon. And the, the image kind of corresponds, obviously, with the title, which comes out of the Osage tradition. The Osage have, uh, they name each month after a moon. And in the month of May, they refer to it as the little flower killer moon. Um, or, the, uh, or they have different kind of ways of phrasing it. But essentially, um, that is because, the reason they uh, call it that is because in the month of May, all these beautiful little flowers spread over the prairie. Um, looks almost like confetti. And then the taller plants come along and steal the light and water from the smaller prairie flowers and they die away. So that month is referred to as this kind of killing moon. And so um, in the month of May is when one of the first central murders took place. And so that's where the title comes from, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. And the image on the cover kind of captures that kind of eerie. How did you first learn of the early 20th century Osage murders, and why did you decide to research the killings? So um, I had uh, I was speaking to an historian who had mentioned them to me. He didn't know much about them, but he had mentioned them to me. And I made a trip out to uh, the Osage Nation back in 2011. And I made a trip uh, to the Osage Nation Museum. And when I was there, I saw this uh, panoramic photograph on the wall. I was taken in uh, 1924. It shows members of the uh, Osage Nation along with white settlers. Uh, It looks very innocent. But I noticed that a portion of the photograph was missing. And I asked the then museum director, who would later become a friend of mine, Catherine Redcorn, what had happened uh, to that missing portion of the photo. Uh, and she said she decided to remove it because it contained a figure so frightening um, 
And then she pointed to the missing panel and she said the devil was standing right there. And it turned out that that missing panel contained one of the killers of the Osage. And for me, that was really a kind of galvanizing moment that prompted me to really want to research the story to try to uh, write a book about it because I kept thinking um, the Osage had removed that photo not to forget what had happened uh, to the Osage who were serially murdered in the early 20th century because of oil rights uh, and oil wealth under their land. Um, uh, and they had removed that photograph not to forget but because they can't forget. And yet so many people, including myself, had either forgotten or never had any knowledge of these events. Uh, and so that began a, a five-year process of researching and writing the book. How did you approach uh, Osage history as well as the early history of law enforcement and the FBI in your book? <laughs> so um, there were really two approaches to the research. Um, one was archival. Um, I spent a lot of time in various archives around the country uh, looking for records, looking for documents, trial transcripts uh, in a branch of the um, National Archives in Fort Worth, Texas, which is this enormous warehouse. It looks like something out of Raiders of the Lost Ark in that last scene where they tuck the Ark away. It looks something like that. I would pull records. There I found the secret grand jury testimony uh, from many of the trial cases, which to the best of my knowledge and not been any public. Um, I looked for all sorts of FBI records and did Freedom of Information Act. I also um, tried to track down descendants of both the murderers and the victims. Uh, many of whom still live um, in the same neighborhoods to this day. And they provided oral histories. They gave me testimony um, in tracking down many of the descendants of the, of the victims who were killed. Um, they gave me a real sense about how this history still reverberates to this day. Can you trace Osage, Osage removal to Oklahoma? Can you trace their removal to Oklahoma? Their proprietorship of all oil, coal, all oil, coal, and gas, as well as how they became, by 1923, the wealthiest people per capita in the world. Yes, yeah, so um, the Osage were once controlled um, and laid claim to much of the central part of uh, what is today the United States, um, all the way from Missouri and Kansas to the edge of the Rockies. Uh, in the early 1800s, um, Thomas Jefferson, President Thomas Jefferson, referred to them as that great nation. And in fact, he met with a delegation of Osage chiefs in uh, 1803 or 1804, and he assured them that uh, they would know the federal government only as friends and benefactors. But of course, within a few years, he began to uh, uh, force them off their land. And within a few decades, the Osage were forced to cede more than 100 million acres of their ancestral territory. And they were confined to a reservation in Kansas, uh, in uh, 18, by the 1860s, and they were once more under siege by white settlers, and they had to once more look for a new homeland. And it was then that a, an Osage chief uh, stood up and he said, we should move to what is, uh, it was then part of Indian Territory, would later become a part of Oklahoma. And he said, because the land was rocky and hilly and infertile, and the white man considered it worthless, so they would finally leave us alone, and our people will be happy in that land. So they actually purchased that territory, they purchased it, and they relocated there uh, in the early 1870s. Um, by then, the forced migrations, uh, disease, uh, massacres, taken a tremendous toll on the Osage Nation, 
their numbers reduced to just a few thousand. Um, many of them were starving at that point. Um, and then lo and behold, this seemingly forsaken land turned out to be sitting upon some of the largest deposits of oil uh, then in the United States. And the Osage, uh, as you mentioned, became um, the wealthiest people per capita in the world. And there's a little bit of history to that, too, that's quite interesting, which is um, the federal government by had began to force so many um, American Indian nations to be allotted, breaking up their territory. And the Osage had resisted this. Um, and the, because they had a deed to the land, they had more leverage with the federal government. And because they were the last nation to be uh, American Indian nation to be allotted in what would soon become Oklahoma, there was a, a good deal of rush and pressure uh, to allot the Osage. And the Osage were also then led by one of their greatest chiefs, a man who spoke seven languages, including Sui and Latin and French. And they inserted during their negotiations a provision uh, into their treaty with the U.S. government, which at the time seemed very curious, which said, we shall maintain all the subsurface mineral rights to our land. Now, they didn't know they were sitting on a fortune. Nobody did. Um, they knew there were some trickles of oil. And they very shrewdly managed to hold on to this last realm of their territory, which they could not even see. And soon after, most, most of the surface territory disappeared into the hands of whites. But the Osage continued to maintain all the subsurface mineral rights to this land, which was about the size of Delaware. And they became the world's first underground reservation. Please describe how this oil um, transformed um, race and ethnic relations on the Osage Reservation, as well as the Osage Hills, um, such as the establishment of boom towns and outposts uh, like Greyhorse and Fairfax. Yeah, so um, very quickly, um, uh, once the oil boom had begun in the, uh, in the early 1900s, um, and, and some of the largest deposits of oil were then discovered uh, in the United States, um, there was such demand for Osage uh, oil that the Osage would hold auctions uh, under an elm tree. Uh, leases would sell for as much as a million dollars, two million dollars, and that tree became known as the million dollar elm. So many of the legendary oil barons, you know, names that we know today, like the Getty family, they first struck oil in Osage territory, first made their fortune in Osage territory. Uh, E.W. Marlins. Harry Sinclair, the Phillips brothers from Conoco, they would all attend these auctions, uh, bidding wildly on these leases. Um, in 1923, the Osage received collectively what would be worth today more than $400 million in that year alone. Um, and, of course, the oil drew in settlers and uh, oil workers from all over the country. It was kind of a these were wild boom towns and, and oil would be struck in, a, in an area and within 24 hours, a, a town would begin to emerge. Um, and these were really wild towns. Uh, some of, one of them was known as whiz bang. Uh, it was said because people whizzed all day uh, and banged all night. And um, it led in many ways to um, the dissolution of, of a lot of the Osage traditions and cultures as more and more whites overwhelmed uh, these areas. Many Osage intermarried. And uh, one of the people I write about in the book is this kind of remarkable woman named Molly Burkhart. And she was born in a wigwam in the 1880s, uh, speaking only Osage, practicing Osage traditions. Within a few decades, um, because of the money, 
Um, she was living in a mansion and she had married a white settler, a man named Ernest Burkhardt. Um, and in many ways, she straddled not only two centuries, but two civilizations. Can you detail uh, for just a moment her relationship with house, household servants, her husband and her mother-in-law? And if possible, I'm not sure you can answer this, but how did do you know the circumstances of her meeting her husband, Ernest? So uh, Molly had many um, uh, servants, um, uh, some of whom were white, which was very typical at the time. Of course, this provoked all sorts of um, prejudiced reactions from uh, other whites around the country that um, here could be this American Indians who who would have uh, white servants. And um, in fact, she met Ernest, who was her white chauffeur. He was a migrant from Texas. And that is how uh, she first met him. He was driving her around. And um, uh, I think, was that the, uh, I, I think I'm still missing one of those questions, but. Uh, and the uh, her relationship with her servants as well as her mother-in-law? Um, well, her, some of the, her, the, some of the relatives who would visit uh, from Burkhardt's family were extremely prejudiced whites and were shocked and expressed great prejudice that Ernest had married um, an American Indian, uh, an Osage woman. And, um, and um, her relationship to her servants was that she was, uh, again, it was a uh, kind of a, um, it upset the, a lot of the kind of racial prejudice of, of lines at the time that um, the American, the, the Osage had great, um, had great wealth. And so they had uh, servants that it was said at the time, whereas one American might own a car, each Osage owned 11 of them. Um, this provoked such prejudice across the country among other whites that somehow the Osage would have this money. The, the U.S. Congress went so far as to pass legislation requiring many Osage uh, to have white guardians and this system to manage their wealth. And this system wasn't abstractly racist. It was, it was literally racist. It was based on the quantum of Osage blood. So if you were a full-blooded Osage, um, uh, if you were a full-blooded Osage, you were deemed quote-unquote incompetent and given one of these white guardians to manage your wealth. And not only was it racist, it also created a really, uh, one of the largest federally and state sanctioned criminal enterprises, as many of these guardians ended up stealing millions and millions of dollars from the Osage. On that note, your study begins with the murders of Charles Whitehorn and Anna Brown, Molly's sister, both on the Osage rules. Can you situate the killings in the context of a string of Osage and investigator deaths between 1920 and 1924, and even before and after that, whether by small caliber gunshot, fires, wasting disease, bomb, or poison that culminated in FBI involvement? Yes. So um, these were extremely sinister crimes. One of the more central, uh, the beginning, first really hints that the Osage were being uh, broadly targeted as part of a criminal conspiracy happened in uh, May of 1921 when Molly's sister, Anna Brown, um, leaves Molly's house and disappears. Molly looked everywhere for her and a week later, um, her body was found in a ravine and she'd been shot in the back of the head. Uh, within days, uh, Molly's mother uh, grows mysteriously sick uh, and within two months, uh, she stopped. She stopped breathing and died. And evidence would later suggest that she had been poisoned. 
So within the span of two months, Molly had lost her older sister. She had lost her mother, who was one of the last of the elders connected to the old Osage traditions. And Molly had a younger sister named Rita, who was so terrified uh, by these killings that she moved. She lived in the countryside with her husband and a white servant. And they moved closer to town near Molly, where they thought it would be safer. And one evening at about three in the morning, Molly heard a loud explosion. She got up and she went to the window and she looked out in the direction of her sister's house. And there, all she could see was a large orange ball rising into the sky. And it turned out that somebody had planted a bomb under her younger sister's house, uh, killing uh, Rita, killing her sister, killing her sister's husband, uh, and the white servant who lived in that house. Um, and it wasn't just Molly's family uh, during this period that was being systematically targeted. Other Osage were. There were poisonings, often with uh, strychnine, which is just a brutal poisoning, causing the whole body to convulse as if electricity uh, while you're conscious uh, until you mercifully suffocate. And there was that bombing. Um, by 1923, Charles Whitehorn was another Osage you mentioned who was uh, fatally shot around this time. Um, by 1923, the, the official death toll had climbed to more than uh, two dozen. And many of those who tried to investigate the killings were themselves murdered. Uh, one attorney was thrown off a speeding train. Another man had gone to D.C. Uh, hoping to get federal authorities uh, to investigate these cases, checked into a boarding house. Um, he left that evening, uh, and at some point he was abducted. Uh, his body was found uh, in a culvert the next day. He had been stabbed more than 24 times and beaten to death. Um, and the Washington Post at the time had a headline which said, uh, conspiracy to kill rich Indians. Um, and it was something obviously the Osage already knew. And in 1923, uh, they issued a tribal resolution pleading with federal authorities to step in because these crimes, and largely because of prejudice and corruption, were being neglected. Um, uh, Mali had crusaded for justice, but nobody... Um, uh, investigated uh, with any sobriety and seriousness uh, the killings of her family members. Um, and so this tribal resolution was issued um, asking for federal authorities to step in. And it was then that the case was taken up by a, a rather obscure branch of the Justice Department. It was then known as the Bureau of Investigation. Of course, we know it today as the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And it will become one of the FBI's first major homicide cases. Before we get into that, can you also situate the initial investigation prior to the FBI in the context of the history of law enforcement and forensics? This was a, a period of real transition for law enforcement uh, in the country. Um, methods were still extremely primitive, not just in rural areas, but across the country. Uh, there was often very little training, very little use, even though scientists had discovered more forensic methods. Um, they were often very poorly adopted uh, by actual uh, sheriff's office and police departments around the country. Fingerprinting was being used, but for example, one of the reasons poisoning was so common in the Osage murders was even though scientists had already knew how to discern whether someone had been poisoned and there were various tests to identify poisons, uh, very few uh, medical examiners in these areas would ever test for poisoning. So it was a very easy way to murder somebody uh, without being caught. And there was also widespread uh, corruption uh, in law enforcement across the country uh, at that time at all levels. Uh, if you were very powerful, it was very easy 
uh, or wealthy. It was very easy to tilt the scales of justice. And that certainly was something that was happening in the Osage cases as these murders piled up and nobody solved them. So as you already alluded to, uh, the Osage murders proved to be one of the first major investigations for the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover. Can you first elucidate the changes that Hoover made to the extant FBI, which was founded, Justice Department founded in 1908 by TR? And then second, his selection of Tom White to spearhead the Osage investigation. Yeah, so the Bureau had just come out of its own uh, large corruption scandal, which was part of oil corruption scandal, which is part of the Teapot Dome scandal, where um, Bureau agents were implicated in trying to stop uh, investigations of those crimes, illegally following, uh, wiretapping senators at the time. Um, the Teapot Dome scandal extended to allegations of a widespread corruption in the Bureau, in which there were kickbacks and bribes. Um, and so the Bureau was kind of in tatters, um, uh, you know, in the early 1920s. And uh, when Hoover was brought in, uh, he was very young at the time. In 1923, he was old, became acting director. He was only um, 29 years old. And um, there was an effort at that time to try to reform the Bureau, to get rid of um, various elements of corruption, to also modernize the Bureau and modernize more scientific professional techniques of investigation. Um, Bureau Hoover was given that uh, responsibility. And on one level, he did modernize the Bureau. I mean, he was a, a kind of a manic bureaucratic organized, probably the most effective bureaucrat in the history of this country. And he rapidly began to uh, modernize the Bureau. Um, on the other hand, he um, used that power, as we would see as the years went on, for his own great abuses. And um, so uh, these, both these tenets or both these elements of his character uh, and impact on the Bureau were playing out at this time. And when he inherited the, the Osage case, he initially kind of just wanted to get rid of it because the Bureau hadn't been able to solve it. Um, and at one point, they had even gotten a, uh, a, a informant, an outlaw out of jail, um, a guy named Blackie Thompson, and they hoped to use him as an informant. Um, but instead, he slipped away and he ended up killing a police officer. And the Bureau was ter- and Hoover was terrified that a scandal may undermine his um, his directorship because he was at that point very insecure and he had just taken over the Bureau in the wake of this big scandal. And so it was that reason that he decided to turn the case over to Tom White. And Tom White um, was different than many of the new agents that Hoover was hiring. Hoover was hiring these college kids who it was said could could type uh, faster than they shot. And in many ways, they really lacked criminal investigative experience. Tom White was an old former Texas Ragent, an old frontier lawman. Um, He had a lot of experience um, as a criminal investigator. And he came from a family of lawmen from Texas. His father was a lawman. His brothers were lawmen. One was a bureau agent. And um, so he uh, he ends up taking over this case. And um, he ends up putting together an undercover team uh, to investigate the crimes. And among the undercover operatives he chose um, to investigate those age murders, one of them was an American Indian agent who, even though records of that 
weren't kept at the time, it's fair to say he was probably the only American Indian in Hoover's Bureau at the time. How did these, on that note, how did these covers uh, facilitate the investigation? How did they, how did these covers play out during the ensuing investigation? Yeah, so they assumed all sorts of uh, covers. So um, they pretended to be cattlemen. Um, one pretended to be an insurance salesman. And according to the records, sold actual insurance policies. So I have no idea what became of those policies. And um, they went in undercover. Um, and in many ways, the investigation was less like a criminal investigation than like an espionage case. There were um, double agents, possibly a triple agent. There were moles. Uh, the agents and whites teams, the reports, internal reports kept le- being leaked out, ending up in the hands of suspects. And uh, the agents were being trailed. And um, so, uh, but ultimately what they do is they try to follow the money, in particular the money to see who was profiting from these murders, in particular who was profiting in the cases of Molly's family. Uh, and those murders. If you can elaborate a little bit on that, uh, uh, how the team ultimately unraveled this uh, so-called Osage reign of terror. Uh, and again, this may be a difficult question without disclosing the perpetrators to, to our listeners. Yeah. So they ultimately followed the money and that led them um, in the case of the murders of Molly's family to a very uh, powerful uh, white settler. And it turned out that um, he was not only somebody who Molly knew, it was somebody who Molly deeply trusted. And it was typical of these crimes and that they were often very intimate. They involved people, whites, uh, often pretending uh, to love their targets, um, to be friendly to their targets while systematically plotting to murder them. Did this systematic, uh, per, the, the systematic, I guess we would want to call it a conspiracy, does this reach back before the, uh, the victims knew the perpetrators or not, or maybe during, or do you, can you answer that question? Yeah, so no. So, you know, the, 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 someone like Molly was living amid this conspiracy, which was incredibly bewildering at the time, and she did not know who was targeting her family members. She did not know who was responsible. Um, and so, um, and in fact, she herself is being targeted by the end. And so, uh, again, the, many of, the, many of the, the victims of the people being targeted um, you know, were living in a world where people whom they thought they trusted were incredibly deceptive, covering up evidence um, while plotting against them. I mean, the, the the end of your book really uh, blew me away, and uh, it brought up all these questions about race relations, as well as uh, family history and clan history, etc. What role did, uh, if any, did oral history, contemporary oral history, and testimonies play in your study? Oral history and testimony was instrumental in telling the story. So, for example, one of the people I tracked down was uh, Molly Burkhardt's granddaughter, a lovely woman named Margie who, you know, she took me out to the, the graveyard where so many of her um, her murdered ancestors um, are buried. Um, she gave me a real sense about how this history still lives and reverberates this day. She gave me insights into Molly's character and, and what she went through. And uh, that was true of so many of my interviews with uh, various descendants, Osage descendants who have been targeted from these crimes. And one of the most important things that they demonstrated and 
um, illuminated was that while the FBI um, was able to capture some of the killers, um, there really was a much deeper and darker conspiracy that the Bureau never exposed and that the real death toll was far larger um, in the scores, if not hundreds, and that many of these crimes had gone unresolved. Very scary. Thank you so much uh, for your uh, straightforward and uh, succinct yet uh, nuanced responses, Mr. Graham. I have one more question um, that you may or may not be able to disclose at this time. Uh, what's, what, what's your next project? And, uh, you know, are you planning on taking a vacation, obviously? Uh, <laughs> um, or, or what do you have planned? What's next? That's very nice. Yeah. So I have um, a, a short a, a short book that will be coming out in uh, probably November um, uh, based on a, a New Yorker story I did. It's called The White Darkness. And it's about, it's very different. Um, I, I really needed a change of pace after the five years working on um, Killers of the Flower Moon. And it's about a, 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 a British explorer who tried to follow in the footsteps of Shackleton and tried to walk across Antarctica alone. Um, and it's a story of his quest, and it's also a love story um, between him and uh, his family. And um, so it's, it's, it's a very uh, different, different, uh, different kind of story. But so that will that'll come out in November. And then I'm looking for my next big uh, book project after that. Well, Mr. Grant, thank you so much for being on the show today. This is Ryan Tripp. We've been speaking with Mr. David Grant on behalf of the New Books Network and uh, the Native American Studies channel. 